0: Guns are used to hunt, for self-defense, to commit crimes, for sporting activities, and to perform military duties. The Second Amendment plainly does not protect the right to use a gun to rob a bank. It is equally clear that it does encompass the right to use weapons for certain military purposes. Whether it also protects the right to to possess and use guns for non-military purposes, like hunting and personal self-defense, is the question presented by this case.
1: When Washington, D.C.'s Special Police Officer Dick Heller applied for a one-year license to keep a handgun in his home, it was denied. So, he sued the District of Columbia for an injunction against the enforcement of the law that made it illegal to keep a functional firearm in his home without a license, arguing that the law violated his Second Amendment rights. And in the controversial landmark opinion of the court in District of Columbia v. Heller, which I read last episode, the Supreme Court agreed. Today, I'll be reading Justice Stevens dissenting opinion in that case.
0: It is clear to us that adherence to a policy of judicial restraint would be far wiser than the bold decision announced today.
1: And now, Part 1 of Justice Stevens' 2008 Dissenting Opinion in District of Columbia v. Heller. Justice Stevens, with whom Justice Souter, Justice Ginsburg, And Justice Breyer join. Dissenting. The question presented by this case is not whether the Second Amendment protects a collective right or an individual right. Surely it protects a right that can be enforced by individuals. But a conclusion that the Second Amendment protects an individual right does not tell us anything about the scope of that right. Guns are used to hunt, for self-defense, to commit crimes, for sporting activities, and to perform military duties. The Second Amendment plainly does not protect the right to use a gun to rob a bank. It is equally clear that it does encompass the right to use weapons for certain military purposes. Whether it also protects the right to possess and use guns for non-military purposes like hunting and personal self-defense is the question presented by this case. The text of the amendment, its history, and our decision in United States v. Miller, 1939, provide a clear answer to that question. The Second Amendment was adopted to protect the right of the people of each of the several states to maintain a well-regulated militia. It was a response to concerns raised during the ratification of the Constitution that the power of Congress to disarm the state militias and create a national standing army posed an intolerable threat to the sovereignty of the several states. Neither the text of the amendment nor the arguments advanced by its proponents evidenced the slightest interest in limiting any legislature's authority to regulate private civilian uses of firearms. Specifically, there is no indication that the framers of the amendment intended to enshrine the common law right of self-defense in the Constitution. In 1934, Congress enacted the National Firearms Act, the first major federal firearms law. Upholding a conviction under that act, this court held that, in the absence of any evidence tending to show that possession or use of a shotgun, having a barrel of less than 18 inches in length, at this time has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, we cannot say that the Second Amendment guarantees the right to keep and bear such an instrument. The view of the amendment we took in Miller, that it protects the right to keep and bear arms for certain military purposes, but that it does not curtail the legislature's power to regulate the non-military use and ownership of weapons is both the most natural reading of the amendment's text and the interpretation most faithful to the history of its adoption. Since our decision in Miller, hundreds of judges have relied on the view of the amendment we endorsed there. We ourselves affirmed it in 1980. No new evidence has surfaced since 1980 supporting the view that the amendment was intended to curtail the power of Congress to regulate civilian use or misuse of weapons. Indeed, a review of the drafting history of the amendment demonstrates that its framers rejected proposals that would have broadened its coverage to include such uses. The opinion the Court announces today fails to identify any new evidence supporting the view that the amendment was intended to limit the power of Congress to regulate civilian uses of weapons. Unable to point to any such evidence, the court stakes its holding on a strained and unpersuasive reading of the amendment's text. Significantly different provisions in the 1689 English Bill of Rights and in various 19th-century state constitutions, post-enactment commentary that was available to the court when it decided Miller, and ultimately a feeble attempt to distinguish Miller that places more emphasis on the court's decisional process than on the reasoning in the opinion itself even if the textual and historical arguments on both sides of the issue were evenly balanced. Respect for the well-settled views of all of our predecessors on this court and for the rule of law itself would prevent most jurists from endorsing such a dramatic upheaval in the law. As Justice Cardozo observed years ago, the labor of judges would be increased almost to the breaking point if every past decision could be reopened in every case, and one could not lay one's own course of bricks on the secure foundation of the courses laid by others who had gone before him. In this dissent, I shall first explain why our decision in Miller was faithful to the text of the Second Amendment and the purposes revealed in its drafting history. I shall then comment on the post-ratification history of the amendment, which makes abundantly clear that the amendment should not be interpreted as limiting the authority of Congress to regulate the use or possession of firearms for purely civilian purposes. Part 1. The text of the Second Amendment is brief. It provides a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Three portions of that text merit special focus. The introductory language defining the Amendment's purpose the class of persons encompassed within its reach, and the unitary nature of the right that it protects. A well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state. The preamble to the Second Amendment makes three important points. It identifies the preservation of the militia as the amendment's purpose. It explains that the militia is necessary to the security of a free state, and it recognizes that the militia must be well-regulated. In all three respects, it is comparable to provisions in several state declarations of rights that were adopted roughly contemporaneously with the Declaration of Independence. Those state provisions highlight the importance members of the founding generation attached to the maintenance of state militias. They also underscore the profound fear shared by many in that era of the dangers posed by standing armies. While the need for state militias has not been a matter of significant public interest for almost two centuries, that fact should not obscure the contemporary concerns that animated the framers. The parallels between the Second Amendment and these state declarations, and the Second Amendment's omission of any statement of purpose related to the right to use firearms for hunting or for personal self-defense, is especially striking in light of the fact that the declarations of rights of Pennsylvania and Vermont, did expressly protect such civilian uses at the time. Article 8 of Pennsylvania's 1776 Declaration of Rights announced that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. And Article 15 of the 1777 Vermont Declaration of Rights guaranteed that the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and the state. The contrast between those two declarations and the Second Amendment reinforces the clear statement of purpose announced in the Amendment's preamble. It confirms that the Framers' single-minded focus in crafting the constitutional guarantee to keep and bear arms was on military uses of firearms, which they viewed in the context of service in state militias. The preamble thus both sets forth the object of the amendment, and informs the meaning of the remainder of its text. Such text should not be treated as mere surplusage, for it cannot be presumed that any clause in the Constitution is intended to be without effect. The Court today tries to denigrate the importance of this clause of the amendment by beginning its analysis with the amendment's operative provision and returning to the preamble merely to ensure that our reading of the operative clause is consistent with the announced purpose. That is not how this court ordinarily reads such texts, and it is not how the preamble would have been viewed at the time the amendment was adopted. While the court makes the novel suggestion that it need only find some logical connection between the preamble and the operative provision, it does acknowledge that a prefatory clause may resolve an ambiguity in the text. Without identifying any language in the text that even mentions civilian uses of firearms, the court proceeds to find its preferred reading in what is, at best, an ambiguous text, and then concludes that its reading is not foreclosed by the preamble. Perhaps the court's approach to the text is acceptable advocacy but it is surely an unusual approach for judges to follow. The right of the people The centerpiece of the court's textual argument is its insistence that the words the people, as used in the Second Amendment, must have the same meaning and protect the same class of individuals as when they are used in the First and Fourth Amendments. According to the Court, in all three provisions, as well as the Constitution's preamble, Section 2 of Article 1, and the Tenth Amendment, the term unambiguously refers to all members of the political community, not an unspecified subset but the court itself reads the Second Amendment to protect a subset significantly narrower than the class of persons protected by the First and Fourth Amendments. When it finally drills down on the substantive meaning of the Second Amendment, the court limits the protected class to law-abiding, responsible citizens— But the class of persons protected by the First and Fourth Amendments is not so limited, for even felons may invoke the protections of those constitutional provisions. The court offers no way to harmonize its conflicting pronouncements. The court also overlooks the significance of the way the framers used the phrase, the people in these constitutional provisions. In the First Amendment, no words define the class of individuals entitled to speak, to publish, or to worship. In that amendment, it is only the right peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances that is described as a right of the people. These rights contemplate collective action. While the right peaceably to assemble protects the individual rights of those persons participating in the assembly, its concern is with action engaged in by members of a group, rather than any single individual. Likewise, although the act of petitioning the government is a right that can be exercised by individuals, it is primarily collective in nature for if they are to be effective, petitions must involve groups of individuals acting in concert. Similarly, the words the people in the Second Amendment refer back to the object announced in the Amendment's preamble. They remind us that it is the collective action of individuals having a duty to serve in the militia that the text directly protects and, perhaps more importantly, that the ultimate purpose of the amendment was to protect the state's share of the divided sovereignty created by the Constitution. As used in the Fourth Amendment, the people describes the class of persons protected from unreasonable searches and seizures by government officials. It is true that the Fourth Amendment describes a right that need not be exercised in any collective sense but that observation does not settle the meaning of the phrase the people when used in the second amendment for as we have seen the phrase means something quite different in the petition and assembly clauses of the first amendment although the abstract definition of the phrase the people could carry the same meaning in the second amendment as in the fourth amendment The preamble of the Second Amendment suggests that the uses of the phrase in the First and Second Amendments are the same in referring to a collective activity. By way of contrast, the Fourth Amendment describes a right against governmental interference rather than an affirmative right to engage in protected conduct and so refers to a right to protect a purely individual interest. As used in the Second Amendment, the words the people do not enlarge the right to keep and bear arms to encompass use or ownership of weapons outside the context of service in a well-regulated militia. To keep and bear arms. Although the court's discussion of these words treats them as two phrases, as if they read, to keep and to bear. They describe a unitary right, to possess arms if needed for military purposes, and to use them in conjunction with military activities. As a threshold matter, it is worth pausing to note an oddity in the Court's interpretation of to keep and bear arms. Unlike the Court of Appeals, the Court does not read that phrase to create a right to possess arms for lawful private purposes. Instead, the Court limits the amendment's protection to the right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. No party or amicus urged this interpretation. The court appears to have fashioned it out of whole cloth. But although this novel limitation lacks support in the text of the amendment, the amendment's text does justify a different limitation. The right to keep and bear arms Protects only a right to possess and use firearms in connection with service in a state organized militia. The term bear arms is a familiar idiom. When used unadorned by any additional words, its meaning is to serve as a soldier, do military service, fight. It is derived from the Latin arma fere, which translated literally means to bear war equipment. One 18th century dictionary defined arms as weapons of offense or armor of defense. And another contemporaneous source explained that by arms we understand those instruments of offense generally made use of in war, such as firearms, swords, etc., By weapons, we more particularly mean instruments of other kinds, made use of as offensive on special occasions. Had the framers wished to expand the meaning of the phrase "bear arms to encompass civilian possession and use, they could have done so by the addition of phrases such as for the defense of themselves, as was done in the Pennsylvania and Vermont Declarations of Rights. The unmodified use of bare arms, by contrast, refers most naturally to a military purpose, as evidenced by its use in literally dozens of contemporary texts. The absence of any reference to civilian uses of weapons tailors the text of the amendment to the purpose identified in its preamble. But when discussing these words, the court simply ignores the preamble. The court argues that a qualifying phrase that contradicts the word or phrase it modifies is unknown this side of the looking-glass. But this fundamentally fails to grasp the point. The standalone phrase, bear arms, most naturally conveys a military meaning, unless the addition of a qualifying phrase signals that a different meaning is intended. When, as in this case, there is no such qualifier, the most natural meaning is the military one, and in the absence of any qualifier, it is all the more appropriate to look to the preamble to confirm the natural meaning of the text. The Court's objection is particularly puzzling in light of its own contention that the addition of the modifier against changes the meaning of bare arms. The amendment's use of the term keep in no way contradicts the military meaning conveyed by the phrase bare arms and the amendment's preamble, To the contrary, a number of state militia laws in effect at the time of the Second Amendment's drafting used the term keep to describe the requirement that militia members store their arms at their homes, ready to be used for service when necessary. The Virginia Military Law, for example, ordered that every one of the said officers, non-commissioned officers and privates, shall constantly keep the aforesaid arms, accoutrements, and ammunition, ready to be produced whenever called for by his commanding officer. Keep and bear arms thus perfectly describes the responsibilities of a framing-era militia member. This reading is confirmed by the fact that the clause protects only one right rather than two. It does not describe a right to keep arms and a separate right to bear arms. Rather, the single right that it does describe is both a duty and a right to have arms available and ready for military service and to use them for military purposes when necessary. Different language surely would have been used to protect non-military use and possession of weapons from regulation if such an intent had played any role in the drafting of the amendment. When each word in the text is given full effect, the amendment is most naturally read to secure to the people a right to use and possess arms in conjunction with service in a well-regulated militia. So far as appears... No more than that was contemplated by its drafters, or is encompassed within its terms. Even if the meaning of the text were genuinely susceptible to more than one interpretation, the burden would remain on those advocating a departure from the purpose identified in the preamble and from settled law to come forward with persuasive new arguments or evidence. The textual analysis offered by respondent and embraced by the court falls far short of sustaining that heavy burden, and the court's emphatic reliance on the claim that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right is, of course, beside the point, because the right to keep and bear arms for service in a state militia was also a pre-existing right. Indeed, not a word in the constitutional text even arguably supports the court's overwrought and novel description of the Second Amendment as elevating, above all other interests, the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms in defense of hearth and home. Part 2 The proper allocation of military power in the new nation was an issue of central concern for the framers. The compromises they ultimately reached, reflected in Article I's Militia Clauses and the Second Amendment, represent quintessential examples of the framers splitting the atom of sovereignty. Two themes relevant to our current interpretive task run through the debates on the original Constitution. On the one hand, there was a widespread fear that a national standing army posed an intolerable threat to individual liberty and to the sovereignty of the separate states. Governor Edmund Randolph, reporting on the Constitutional Convention to the Virginia Ratification Convention, explained, With respect to a standing army, I believe there was not a member in the Federal Convention did not feel indignation at such an institution. On the other hand, the framers recognized the dangers inherent in relying on inadequately trained militia members as the primary means of providing for the common defense during the Revolutionary War. This force, though armed, was largely untrained and its deficiencies were the subject of bitter complaint. In order to respond to those twin concerns, a compromise was reached. Congress would be authorized to raise and support a national army and navy, and also to organize, arm, discipline, and provide for the calling forth of the militia. The president, at the same time, was empowered as the commander-in-chief of the army and navy of the United States, and of the militia of the several states, when called into the actual service of the United States. But with respect to the militia, a significant reservation was made to the states. Although Congress would have the power to call forth, organize, arm, and discipline the militia, as well as to govern such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States. The states, respectively, would retain the right to appoint the officers and to train the militia in accordance with the discipline prescribed by Congress. But the original Constitution's retention of the militia and its creation of divided authority over that body did not prove sufficient to allay fears about the dangers posed by a standing army. For it was perceived by some that Article I contained a significant gap. While it empowered Congress to organize, arm, and discipline the militia, it did not prevent Congress from providing for the militia's disarmament. As George Mason argued during the debates in Virginia on the ratification of the original Constitution. The militia may be here destroyed by that method which has been practiced in other parts of the world before, that is, by rendering them useless, by disarming them. Under various pretenses, Congress may neglect to provide for arming and disciplining the militia, and the state governments cannot do it, for Congress Has the exclusive right to arm them. This sentiment was echoed at a number of state ratification conventions. Indeed, it was one of the primary objections to the original Constitution voiced by its opponents. The Anti Federalists were ultimately unsuccessful in persuading state ratification conventions to condition their approval of the Constitution upon the eventual inclusion of any particular amendment. But a number of states did propose to the first federal Congress amendments reflecting a desire to ensure that the institution of the militia would remain protected under the new government. The proposed amendments sent by the states of Virginia, North Carolina, and New York focused on the importance of preserving the state militia's and reiterated the dangers posed by standing armies. New Hampshire sent a proposal that differed significantly from the others. While also invoking the dangers of a standing army, it suggested that the Constitution should more broadly protect the use and possession of weapons, without tying such a guarantee expressly to the maintenance of the militia. The states of Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts sent no relevant proposed amendments to Congress, but in each of those states, a minority of the delegates advocated related amendments. While the Maryland minority proposals were exclusively concerned with standing armies and conscientious objectors, the unsuccessful proposals in both Massachusetts and Pennsylvania would have protected a more broadly worded right, less clearly tied to service in a state militia. Faced with all of these options, it is telling that James Madison chose to craft the Second Amendment as he did. The relevant proposal sent by the Virginia Ratifying Convention read as follows. Seventeenth, that the people have a right to keep and bear arms, That a well regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper natural and safe defense of a free state, that standing armies are dangerous to liberty, and therefore ought to be avoided, as far as the circumstances and protection of the community will admit, and that in all cases the military should be under strict subordination to, and be governed by, The civil power. Nineteenth, that any person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms ought to be exempted, upon payment of an equivalent, to employ another to bear arms in his stead. North Carolina adopted Virginia's proposals and sent them to Congress as its own, although it did not actually ratify the original Constitution until Congress had sent the proposed Bill of Rights to the states for ratification. New York produced a proposal with nearly identical language. It read, That the people have a right to keep and bear arms, that a well-regulated militia, including the body of the people capable of bearing arms, is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. That standing armies, in time of peace, are dangerous to liberty, and ought not be kept up, except in cases of necessity, and that at all times the military should be kept under strict subordination to the civil power. Notably, each of these proposals used the phrase, keep and bear arms, which was eventually adopted by Madison and each proposal embedded the phrase within a group of principles that are distinctly military in meaning. By contrast, New Hampshire's proposal, although it followed another proposed amendment that echoed the familiar concern about standing armies, described the protection involved in more clearly personal terms. Its proposal read, 12th. Congress shall never disarm any citizen unless such as are or have been in actual rebellion. The proposals considered in the other three states, although ultimately rejected by their respective ratification conventions, are also relevant to our historical inquiry. First, the Maryland Proposal, endorsed by a minority of the delegates and later circulated in pamphlet form, read, 4. That no standing army shall be kept up in time of peace unless with the consent of two-thirds of the members present of each branch of Congress. 10. That no person conscientiously scrupulous of bearing arms in any case shall be compelled personally to serve as a soldier. The rejected Pennsylvania proposal, which was later incorporated into a critique of the Constitution, titled, The Address and Reasons of Dissent of the Pennsylvania Minority of the Convention of the State of Pennsylvania to Their Constituents, 1787, signed by a minority of the state's delegates, those who had voted against ratification of the Constitution, 7. That the people have a right to bear arms for the defense of themselves and their own state, or the United States, or for the purpose of killing game, and no law shall be passed for disarming the people or any of them unless for crimes committed or real danger of public injury from individuals, and as standing armies in the time of peace are dangerous to liberty they ought not to be kept up, and that the military shall be kept under strict subordination to, and be governed by, the civil powers. Finally, after the delegates at the Massachusetts Ratification Convention had compiled a list of proposed amendments and alterations, a motion was made to add to the list the following language, that the said Constitution never be construed to authorize Congress to prevent the people of the United States, who are peaceable citizens, from keeping their own arms. This motion, however, failed to achieve the necessary support, and the proposal was excluded from the list of amendments the State sent to Congress. Madison, charged with the task of assembling the proposals for amendments sent by the ratifying states, was the principal draftsman of the Second Amendment. He had before him, or at the very least would have been aware of, all of these proposed formulations. In addition, Madison had been a member some years earlier of the committee tasked with drafting the Virginia Declaration of Rights. That committee considered a proposal by Thomas Jefferson that would have included within the Virginia Declaration the following language, No freeman shall ever be debarred the use of arms within his own lands or tenements. But the committee rejected that language, adopting instead The Provision Drafted by George Mason With all of these sources upon which to draw, it is strikingly significant that Madison's first draft omitted any mention of non-military use or possession of weapons. Rather, his original draft repeated the essence of the two proposed amendments sent by Virginia— combining the substance of the two provisions succinctly into one, which read, The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, a well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country, but no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. Madison's decision to model the Second Amendment on the distinctly military Virginia proposal is therefore revealing, since it is clear that he considered and rejected formulations that would have unambiguously protected civilian uses of firearms. When Madison prepared his first draft, and when that draft was debated and modified it is reasonable to assume that all participants in the drafting process were fully aware of the other formulations that would have protected civilian use and possession of weapons, and that their choice to craft the amendment as they did represented a rejection of those alternative formulations. Madison's initial inclusion of an exemption for conscientious objectors sheds revelatory light on the purpose of the amendment. It confirms an intent to describe a duty as well as a right, and it unequivocally identifies the military character of both. The objections voiced to the conscientious objector clause only confirm the central meaning of the text. Although records of the debate in the Senate which is where the conscientious objector clause was removed, do not survive, the arguments raised in the House illuminate the perceived problems with the clause. Specifically, there was concern that Congress can declare who are those religiously scrupulous and prevent them from bearing arms. The ultimate removal of the clause, therefore, only serves to confirm The purpose of the amendment to protect against congressional disarmament by whatever means of the state's militias. The court also contends that because Quakers oppose the use of arms not just for militia service but for any violent purpose whatsoever, the inclusion of a conscientious objector clause in the original draft of the amendment does not support the conclusion that the phrase bear arms was military in meaning, but that claim cannot be squared with the record. In the proposals cited, both Virginia and North Carolina included the following language, that any person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms ought to be exempted upon payment of an equivalent to employ another to bear arms in his stead there is no plausible argument that the use of bare arms in those provisions was not unequivocally and exclusively military. The state simply does not compel its citizens to carry arms for the purpose of private confrontation or for self-defense. The history of the adoption of the amendment thus describes an overriding concern about the potential threat to state sovereignty that a federal standing army would pose, and a desire to protect the state's militias as the means by which to guard against that danger. But state militias could not effectively check the prospect of a federal standing army so long as Congress retained the power to disarm them, and so a guarantee against such disarmament was needed. As we explained in Miller, with obvious purpose to assure the continuation and render possible the effectiveness of such forces, the declaration and guarantee of the Second Amendment were made. It must be interpreted and applied with that end in view the evidence plainly refutes the claim that the amendment was motivated by the Framers' fears that Congress might act to regulate any civilian uses of weapons, and even if the historical record were genuinely ambiguous, the burden would remain on the parties advocating a change in the law to introduce facts or arguments newly ascertained the court is unable to identify any such facts or arguments. We've finished the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, the next episode will pick up exactly where this episode ended. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.